Welcome to Pivotal. I'm Hayat Gallo, Corporate Vice President for Commercial Solution Areas at Microsoft. I work with customers around the globe to transform their business through technology. At the center of every transformation are people who give technology its purpose. They are the ones who spark visionary ideas for leveraging technology, and they have the drive to push them forward for their business while empowering others. We like to talk about technology. I love to talk about it. And we often forget the heroes behind technology and transformations. You, we forget you. And that's what I want to talk about through Pivotal. Cybersecurity often seems like an abstract threat, something vague enough that often we find ourselves thinking, it will never happen to me, it'll never happen to my company. We may want to roll our eyes when prompted to implement a two-factor authentication. Can't I just access my information now? But it matters. And we're going to discuss why it matters. Really, cybersecurity is one of the biggest threats to individuals and companies alike. And today, Chief Richard Sneed takes us through a devastating cyber attack his community, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, or EBCI, recently suffered at the hands of Russian cyber criminals. He also shares the steps they've taken since to secure their data and tribal heritage for future generations. My name is uh, Richard Sneed, Principal Chief of the Eastern Man Cherokee Indians, 28th Principal Chief, located in beautiful West North Carolina. I am the 28th Principal Chief. I am in my seventh year and some change of being in office. We are a tribe of 16,000 tribal citizens. We're a federally recognized tribe. We're one of three Cherokee tribes. There's the Eastern Band of Cherokee. There's the United Katua Band of Cherokee, which my wife is a citizen of. And then there's Cherokee Nation. Cherokee Nation and, and UKB are both located in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. For Chief Sneed, the morning of December 7, 2019, began like most mornings. The first thing I do is grab my phone to see what kind of messages I got. And there were a couple email notifications that popped up. And, and I thought uh, immediately, this is a, a scam email. I thought it was one of the, you know, like the ones that you get uh, from uh a Kenyan prince or something, and all we need is your credit card number to order in order to secure. I thought it was one of those type of phishing type scams. And so I just ignored it. In fact, I deleted it. And then shortly thereafter, I got a, a I believe it was a phone call from our IT director stating that there had in fact been a breach and this was serious and do not respond to the emails because the emails were in very broken English saying that they had hacked our network and uh, they wanted $2 million, I think, 2 or $3 million. And so I, I totally thought the whole thing was a scam. Immediately came into the office, and it was just kind of crazy after that. It was uh, very much like uh, it felt like being in, in a movie. But unfortunately, it was real, very real. The Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians had been hacked by Russian cyber criminals. They had, through one of our tribal entities, through their network, which was attached to our network, uh, had gained access through, essentially through a backdoor that was on the network, because one of our IT employees, who was subsequently convicted of being, I guess, we'll call participant, whether knowingly or unknowingly participating, had granted access through their credentials through this tribal entity. They gained access to the network and immediately started encrypting all of the files. The canary in the coal mine, I guess, was our 911 dispatch began shutting down. And so they immediately called the on-call IT person 
who came in and recognized what was happening, immediately started unplugging all the servers, but it was too late at that point. The damage was already done. The hackers were demanding millions of dollars to de-encrypt all their data, effectively holding data for ransom. It was at that point that we contacted our uh, insurance company. We, we were fortunate to have cybersecurity insurance, which I'll be completely honest, I didn't even know that we had. My secretary of treasury, when he came on board, one of the first things he did, because he realized that we didn't have coverage, uh, he acquired a policy for us. I didn't even know that that was a thing. So, I, and I hate to, you know, I, I hate to on the back end seem uninformed, but, you know, if you don't work in IT, you're uninformed, you know, it, it just is what it is. And so, you know, since the attack, I've been very diligent about educating myself on all of these issues. And I've also been very diligent in trying to communicate and educate my fellow tribal leaders about the importance of cybersecurity. Because my mindset was always, I think, what most people's mindset is, is, ah, that'll never happen to us. But it does, you know. And uh, so it was a dark day, to say the least. Thankfully, some of EBCI's data was in the cloud. So not all the data was locked up by encryption. The good news is, is our financial data was not on our server. We have a contract with a service provider and all of our financial data was on their server in the cloud. So all of our financial data was protected, which is was amazing and great. The downside was our finance department had to try to stand up just a temporary um, network to, in order to just do business. So that was, that was a, a, a huge hassle. EBCI also lost important data from their higher education and public health departments. They had to go back and they lost all kinds of records. Fortunately, they had paper backups, but then they had to go back and key all that information back in once the network was stood back up. Public Health and Human Services, we have a syringe services program. Uh, Our community, like every other community, has been hit hard by the opioid epidemic. One of the things that we stood up, uh, I think it was my second year in office, was our syringe services program. And the reason being was we were seeing a tremendous spike in the, in the number of hep C cases from people sharing needles and also HIV. So we stood up syringe services and it has been extremely effective to where we have the CDC is actually tapping us for data all the time. Uh, it's just a very well-run program. They lost a bunch of data, which made it very difficult because uh, many of our public health grants require all that require data for compliance that was lost. But that wasn't the worst of it. The one data breach that is just, you can't put a price tag on it, was uh, the number of audio and video recordings of Cherokee language speakers. So when I took office, we had uh, 455 fluent speakers at the start of this second term. I think we were down to 200 and 275, somewhere in there. And I think now we're down to 175, something like that, fluent speakers. And they're, I mean, they're all up there in the years. And so um, that, that data is just gone. So now we are working overtime trying to capture uh, as much video and audio footage and interviews of, of elders speaking the Overhill dialect as possible. But that, that's just gone and we'll never recover that. Imagine losing your heritage because some hackers got into your system. It's just unimaginable. It's just mind-blowing, and it happens every day. Unfortunately, the consequences of this ransomware attack also had far-reaching effects that extended beyond the Cherokee community. Our tribal boundary borders the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and so the southern entrance to the park, which is the most visited national park in the country, they had 14 million visitors uh, this past year. 
and uh, the park does not have the the capacity uh, as far as the uh, emergency services capacity to deal with the number of visitors that they have. So we have an MOA with them, a mutual help agreement. So if there are car accidents either on the Blue Ridge Parkway, which is also at our southern entrance, as soon as you go into the southern entrance to the park, a quarter mile in is the entrance to the Blue Ridge Parkway, which runs from here all the way up into Virginia. And so we have MOAs and uh, mutual help agreements with both. So if there is uh, a car accident, we deploy our EMS, we deploy our uh, fire department that has paramedics, and we also deploy police to assist. So on the day of the cyber attack that morning, there was an accident because the network was down and the dispatch was was disabled. There was, I believe it was an 18 minute time frame where the emergency services could not be dispatched and deployed. And in the time that it took to get them deployed, the woman who was involved, there was a, a woman who was involved in, in the car accident who, who later succumbed to her injuries. Now, whether or not, you know, she would have survived uh, is, is debatable. But certainly when, when there's a situation like that, every minute matters, uh, seconds matter. And an 18-minute delay when you're waiting for, even for the services to be deployed. And then once they're deployed, depending how far up into the park or on the parkway it is, it could be another 20 or 30 minutes. So um, it, it definitely had uh, uh, really dire consequences on that day. So what happened? How did the hackers get into the network? Chief Sneed tells us. The cause was something he did not expect. The way we were set up before is pretty much how every network was set up prior to the cloud even becoming available, which was uh, everything on site. And we build our perimeter through firewalls. And essentially, our mindset and ideology is we're going to keep all the bad actors out. And that works all fine, good and well, unless you have a bad actor internally, which is what happened with us. This is a story we're hearing over and over in cybercrimes. Companies, for a variety of reasons, haven't migrated their data to cloud technology and think that if they build a strong firewall, they're secure. But it doesn't account for the real vulnerability from within. I want to be clear, the individual who was convicted, and he is appealing his conviction, uh, anything could happen if it could be overturned. As it stands right now, he's been convicted. Uh, I was very careful leading up to it and reminded our community members that uh, in this country, individuals are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And so, But he has subsequently been convicted. For Chief's need, this experience convinced him that moving to the cloud was a no-brainer. We had a few departments that had uh, some of their data in the cloud. Uh, those were the only programs that didn't lose any data at all. And now everything is in the cloud. And so we've gone completely the other way. Everything is in the cloud. We have attained zero trust. We have multi-factor authentication within our IT department. Previously, everyone who worked in IT had full administrator privileges. So literally, everybody had keys to the kingdom, which back then made sense. Right? If you had a problem, you could call anybody in IT and they could assist you. Now, every, everything, absolutely everything is channeled through the help desk. And then, you know, uh, job tickets are created and then they go to the appropriate personnel. And then those personnel have to level up in their security clearance and they only get access to the one thing that they're working on. And that's it. And once that task is completed, their, their, their level up is now downgraded back to just they don't have access. It turns out that most people at EBCI felt the same way. 
a few months back, I, I, I took about a half a day. Uh, it was literally a half a work day and spent time in each one of the departments within the IT division. And every single employee I talked to had the same mindset. They were eternally grateful for the fact that everything was now in the cloud, that we didn't have all, you know, we have these banks of servers sitting on premise. When that cyber attack happened, everybody was suspect, right? Everybody's suspect. Once, now that everybody, now that we're, we have zero trust, which, which sounds bad in, in, until you understand the issue. And then you're like, of course, zero trust. Of course, zero trust. Because it's users everywhere and data anywhere. Of course, zero trust. That's the only way we can do it now because, because your users are everywhere and anywhere and data is everywhere and anywhere. So we absolutely have to go to that. Prior to high-speed internet being made available, on, on-site servers and putting our firewalls up, that made sense for the time. That's ancient history. In companies like Microsoft, we have assessments. So I would say it's a no-brainer. It's like hygiene. Just make sure you get an assessment of your posture if you're not where you need to be, just make sure you start with zero trust. As, as my uh, former IT director, and bless his heart, he <laughs> he had come to work for us. And uh, it was literally like day 89 of his 90-day probationary period when this happened. So it's like, talk about getting thrown into the deep end. He and the team accomplished so much. Uh, and he he called zero trust the holy grail of security, right? It's It's what we should all seek to attain. And it's all of the, it's all these different components. It's, it's the fact that no one person has the keys to the kingdom. No one person has access to all the data and, and to all of the information. No user has access. Uh, every user, when you go to log in, you're, you're going to get the, the multi-factor authentication. And the thing about zero trust and assume rich and not trusting anyone, it's not that we don't trust the individual. It's not about the human. It's about the fact that you don't know what you may click on, what phishing email you may get. Mistakes happen. And this architecture is just about making sure that if a mistake happens, a link is clicked that shouldn't be clicked, then the security is in place to not let you access the network so that the attackers can't move in. So with zero trust, you treat everybody the same way. You got to have the credentials. Otherwise, you can't get into the network. And even Chief Sneed got a taste of the new security protocols while on vacation with his wife. We're in Mexico, and I try to log into my email, and this just wasn't happening. Like, no, you're, you're trying to log in from another country. We don't care who you say you are. You're not getting in. And I, I took the opportunity to, to unplug from the network for a few days. But then I came back and had 700 emails to deal with. So that was kind of a drag. But but essentially, it's, it's, it's just what the name implies, that no one is granted access to a workstation, to the network, to a program, to an Outlook account without multi-factor authentication. And, and no one working in the IT department who has to work on hardware or software is granted full access. They're only granted access to the area they're working on. And then when the task is completed, that's it. They're, they're, they're leveled back down to where they don't have access. Because Chief Sneed's community had just experienced the devastating impact of a ransomware attack, he faced very little of the typical resistance to his new technology. From this moment on, all data will be hosted on Microsoft Azure, will multi-factor authentication, and Microsoft Sentinel for security analytics. 
This solution was designed on zero-trust principle, which meant that no one would ever hold the keys to the kingdom, as Chief Sneed put it. Locally, uh, our IT security guy, network security administrator, was absolutely opposed to being in the cloud. He was a federal government employee prior. He was prior Army. And it's like, everything on-site, build our firewall, you know, defend, defend, you know. And, and then after it happened, he was like, man, I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong. I'm like, okay, well, you're in a good place because it means you're teachable. It's an expense, expensive lesson, but, you know, so, so he became an instant convert to why we need to be in the cloud because there were, there were programs here at the tribe that had their data in the cloud. And, of course, their data was all safe. Uh, so, so there was no pushback here locally. Although everyone locally understood the need for this new type of cloud security, Many tribal leaders throughout the U.S. were still skeptical. And Chief Sneed learned last year about it when he attended Tribal Hub, a nationwide peer support group for tribal leaders interested in staying current with technology trends. I was talking to a person who was an IT director for another tribe. And after this one work session we had, she said, well, I still I still can't really you know, get on board with putting everything in the cloud. It just seems like it's that all your eggs in one basket thing. And I said, well, listen, if you have all your data on servers, on premise, that's all your eggs in one basket too. And you can build all the firewalls you want. I said, but let me tell you about what happened to us. I said, we had a bad actor internally. So you build all the firewalls you want. If you get a bad actor internally, your firewalls are meaningless, right? I said, now think about this. The people who are hacking networks, and who are doing ransomware attacks, that's 24-7, 365. That's all they do, okay? You, your department, me, my department, we don't have the capacity to work 24-7, 365. Microsoft has put like $2 billion to enhancing everything that they're doing, and their plan is to keep putting as much resources as necessary to this fight year over year. You have to think of this as a war. The people who are doing this, they have nothing better to do 24-7 than to get a, for lack of a better term, a useful idiot to click on something because it looks enticing. You don't need a bad person in your company for it to happen. You just need a phishing email and somebody clicks on it. And here you go. They're in business, the hackers. So that's what you want to avoid. When you think about security, It's very narrow, it's very deep, and it is very scary. And very few companies have the experts in-house. So imagine you're a tribe, you're trying to manage within what you know. I can understand why they would think that maybe managing that in-house on-prem is easier for them versus outsourcing that to some big company. At the same time, it's the wrong answer. The first vulnerability you have in cyber is when you're on-prem. You're the first target. It's easier to get in. So you have to learn and you have to embrace it. And at the end of the day, it is super hard to find cybersecurity expertise. You're not in your own company or in your own tribe going to be able to replicate what companies like Microsoft have been building over years. They see all the signals around the world, all the networks. They can preemptively see what's coming and prevent it. That's why you want to get into the cloud. We never like to think we're going to be the target, but often that translates into not planning or assessing risk properly. And look, 
whether we like to think that we're super unique, we're pretty darn predictable as human beings. Okay, our, our reaction, our response to things, pretty predictable. And so I, I said, you have to think of it in terms that of this is a war, and and the people who are doing this, they're cyber terrorists, and this is what they do twenty four seven, and they've got nothing to lose at all because once they're successful and they get paid, they're in Russia. What are we going to do? What are we going to do to them? We, we, there's nothing we can do to them. So I, I think when I offered that perspective, I'm like, you can't spend the resources necessary to fight this fight 24-7, 365. So it has to be an allied front. And the way we do that is we we pay for these services. And, oh, and the other thing we've done, too, is software as a service. So as opposed to loading stuff onto our network all the time, we're using software as a service. And the other thing we've done is we're, we're now, as an individual user, you can't just get software loaded onto the network. Everything has to like, like, so typically what we saw happen was somebody from a program would go to a conference and of course you go to a conference, you have all the vendors, a vendor demonstrates a software platform. You're like, Oh my gosh, we have to have that. That's exactly what we need. And used to be they would come back, they, they initiate a contract, they'd buy the software and we'd load it. Now there's a whole process where that software has to be vetted by our IT department before they can ever even enter into a contract to purchase it. And if it does not meet the security protocols that we have in place, it just gets rejected. And so there's been some pushback from the programs. They don't like that. But it's like, well, that's too bad. You know, it, it has to meet the criteria or it's not going on, this, on the network. Our IT department essentially got the standards from Microsoft. And, and when all this happened, too, Microsoft was amazing. They, they deployed an engineer to be on site with us to work through this. And he was young too, like really young. I, I think that like the guy had graduated college when he was like 16. So he's brilliant. Yeah. So he was, he was a, an, an extremely intelligent guy. But yeah, I think that the standards are Microsoft standards and we've just implemented those standards. Even with dedicated cybersecurity support and implementing the latest data security principle, including zero trust, there is always much more to learn. The cyber criminals are constantly evolving and learning, and we need to learn and evolve one step ahead of them. That's why when you partner with big companies and when you go on the cloud, you get to benefit from all those advancements as we learn from those attacks. If you stay on-prem, you basically have to learn by yourself. Super hard against those very fancy attackers. We improve every day, unfortunately for all of us. After this happened, and, and I started really self-educating, and in the role that I'm in, that is a constant. When I talk to people, they're like, when they say, well, what's the job like? I'm like, think about a learning curve that goes from zero to 100 from day one, and it just stays there because there's constantly new things to learn. I mean, we've got, I've got 1,250 employees. I deal with federal agencies, state agencies, county agencies. Anytime there's, there's something new, I just kind of throw myself into it and try to learn as much as possible. And it was a very eye-opening thing to, really come to grips with the fact that our whole lives now, I mean, everything we do, we can do through a device. If that's a tablet, a, a laptop, or our phone. And so literally, we are walking data points. Everything about our life, our, our lives are all digitized now. It's all a data point. And it's all being looked at. It's all being watched. And it's all being bought and sold. So essentially, we're, you know, we're just viewed as consumers or consumer opportunities and who can market to us. And I remember early on, like when grocery stores 
first started making you get the card for the sale items like 20 years ago. Like, like everybody has them now. We don't think anything about it. Why? Like, why do I have to give swipe my card, this this card? You know, because I didn't, and then 20 years ago, this is, I mean, this is how far back this goes. 20 years ago, um, none of us understood the value of, of data, but the data tells the story of our life. I think what Chief Sneed is saying is is striking in the sense that we just go about our business every day trying to build a business. We don't realize that for some, they're in the business of taking our data away, taking our business away from us. And this is what he's really reflecting on. He had a rude awakening on that morning. And I think he's just learning that he doesn't want to be having another one. I think all of us need to learn from Chief Sneed on the importance of not being the victim of those attackers who have a very different way of looking at our data, a very different angle on our businesses. And interesting enough, security is not only about the infrastructure and the technology you put in place. There is a big cultural aspect to it. You want to make sure that every employee is actually mobilized and educated so that they can take the right habits that they can make sure they don't do the wrong things, that they don't actually let the bad guys in. And those bad guys have a lot of interesting techniques, like some simple phishing emails. So that's also a key part of the process. And it's great to see the chief getting educated deeply so that he can also educate his company. And my whole life is just a bunch of data points that tell us, that, 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 that knows us better than we know ourselves, right? And so the fact that that information is being collected, gathered, stored, and bought and sold is troubling. It's very troubling. But here's the thing. It's never, ever going to go away. So that means that we need to begin to educate our children on the importance of data security, data sovereignty, and protecting our digital footprint, our digital identity that's out there in the world. And if you think about it, we're raising a generation now that they put their whole life out there willingly. Voluntarily, uh, I was just talking to my son. He, my youngest son, he's 21, and he he got in a little bit of trouble. And I said, "Listen, the last thing you need to do is to get on social media and start talking about it, because five five years from now, ten years from now, it's still out there. It's forever. It all ties together with with data security. It really does. Every bit of it. It's fascinating to see how Chief Sneed." didn't become the victim. He just took it on. He embraced technology to actually save his heritage for future generations. Now he's up to date, is embracing technology. He's the voice in the community to try to get other tribes to adopt it so that they can also protect their heritage. And this is what needs to be. That's what it needs to be for every company. Security, yes, It seems strange, hard, complex, remote, weird. We don't want to touch it. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure you bring the experts to help you because many, many companies have been in this situation and none of us want to be in that situation. And it's so fundamental for any businesses to really think about its security posture and understand where you are on that journey and what you need to do differently. You don't need to be the experts, but at least you need to bring experts to help you. That's what Chief Sneed did, and I think that's what we all need to do. 
Thank you for listening to Pivotal. I'd love to hear your story and your pivotal moments. So don't hesitate to follow me and share on LinkedIn. Audience information is also available in the show notes. Our show is produced by Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Special thanks to Lin Yang and our partners at We Communications.